0: You're listening to The Souvenir Shop, a podcast about random objects from the past. Number 39. The Gong. It sits in a box with a pile of unsorted papers, a formal letter from 1967 announcing that my grandfather, Alfred Diamond, had been included in that year's Queen's Birthday Honours list, and that he was to attend Buckingham Palace, where he would be invested as an Officer of the Order of the British Empire – an OBE. The pros and cons of the honours system is an argument that has rumbled on ever since I can remember. Objectively, the idea of awarding someone a medal dedicated to an empire that effectively ceased to exist around the time of Suez is ridiculous. Couple this with the fact that successive Prime Ministers have rendered the whole system a laughing stock and perhaps it's time to do away with them altogether, or at least replace the various MBEs, CBEs and knighthoods with something that belongs after the Victorian era. A look at the 1967 Birthday Honours shows how different the world was. The list contains the usual civil servants, industrialists, senior academics and military top brass, In addition, were what we term the great and the good. Charity bosses, council chiefs, museum curators and the rest. But what sticks out like a sore thumb is the lack of any familiar names. We are now used to the birthday and New Year's honours handing out medals by the bucket load to any celebrity whose TV series made it to four seasons. But in 1967, all we get are Vanessa Redgrave and Richard Attenborough both receiving CBEs. It should be remembered that two years previously, Daily Telegraph readers went apoplectic when it was announced that all four Beatles were to be awarded MBEs. This was a time when if you were made a commander, officer, or member of the order of the British Empire, the idea of the British Empire, although defunct, still carried weight. According to the citation, My grandpa was honoured for his charity and community work in East London. His rags-to-riches story is the stuff of blockbuster films and novels, with one twist. He remained a committed socialist right up until his death. Born in 1901, he went to Davenant Grammar School in Whitechapel, but left at 14 without any qualifications. This was around the same time Grandpa ran away from home to escape his violent alcoholic father. While living in a hostel for the homeless, he worked by day as an office boy and studied bookkeeping at evening classes. It was also around this time that he became interested in radical politics. At 16, he was secretary of the London branch of the Socialist Labour Party, a small organisation with no connection to the National Labour Party that eventually merged with others to form the British Communist Party. In 1917, the Bolsheviks overthrew the Russian government and leftist parties all over the world fully expected the revolution to spread globally within days. To this end, Grandpa went to Leeds to organise workers in the northeast. As we all know, the Russian Revolution was yet another May Day that never quite made it to June, and Grandpa returned to London, the office and his studies. Six years later, and now a fully qualified accountant, he began work at ARKOS, the All-Russian Cooperative Society. This was a commercial arm of the Soviet Union, through which their goods were imported into the UK. But since Britain at this time didn't recognise the Soviet government, Arkos also served as an unofficial embassy for any diplomatic activity between the two countries. Relations between Britain and the Soviets collapsed in 1927, when Special Branch raided the offices of Arkos and closed the company. Grandpa, now married with a son, my father, endured a long period of unemployment. For the rest of his life, he claimed that he couldn't find work because he was blacklisted, although to his grandsons, the idea of a blacklisted accountant still sounds odd. But there was another outcome. Grandpa was, up until then, a staunch member of the Communist Party. A party that repaid his loyalty by shunning him and his former co-workers, suspecting that the events leading up to the Arcos raid were an inside job. Although he remained a die-hard socialist and out of habit a daily worker-reader, he now despised the British Communist Party, the Soviet Union and their betrayal of everything they claimed to stand for. A year later, via grandpa's brother-in-law, he began working for a man called Bill Lee, a property developer and entrepreneur in Chingford, then a small rural town 12 miles from London. The family moved into a new semi-detached house and enjoyed their middle-class idyll until the 1930s recession bankrupted Lee, the house was repossessed, and they were back in the East End. Unemployed again and living in a Hackney Council flat, Grandpa threw himself into community work by helping to manage a Jewish youth club in Stepney. One of the senior figures running the club also happened to be Alex Simpson, owner of Dax Simpson, the clothing manufacturer and retail company. Grandpa was offered a job with Simpson's and quickly rose through the ranks, eventually becoming a financial director. He was appointed a magistrate, served as a director of the Jewish Board of Deputies, as a prison visitor, and worked tirelessly to improve the lot of people in the East End. Amongst other things, until war broke out, he served as secretary of the British Labour Esperanto Association, which is strange because I don't think I ever heard him utter a word of Esperanto. After reaching board level at Dax Simpson, Grandpa served on industrial tribunals, hearing unfair dismissal cases brought by sacked employees. As happens today, such a tribunal was composed of three people, a barrister acting as chair, and representatives from both the Trades Union Congress and the Institute of Directors. Grandpa, representing the latter, often shocked the other two by displaying an attitude far to the left of the union member. Eventually, his good works in East London led him to receiving his OBE, and being honoured in such a way had no effect on Grandpa's political views, with one exception. As a result of meeting the Queen, who asked him at length about his community work, Grandpa became a vocal supporter of the royal family, and would remain so for the rest of his life. It didn't matter if it was Princess Anne's rudeness or Prince Philip's racism. If any member of the Diamond family disparaged the Windsors within earshot of Grandpa, they were quick to hear his defence but when my parents started a modest antiques business, it didn't stop him calling them capitalist, or as he liked to term it, capitalist. Retirement in 1970 didn't slow grandpa down. Among his various charitable and non-governmental work, he became a visiting lecturer at Oxford University, teaching law students about industrial relations and tribunal legislation. Not bad for someone who left school at 14. It was on one such trip that he fell ill. Stomach cancer was diagnosed and he died a few weeks later in April 1978. After grandma died in 1991, the medal in its box ended up with my father and sat half forgotten in a cupboard until the late 1990s. When my parents' house was burgled Amongst the cash, jewellery and portable electricals stolen was the OBE. Dad requested a replica only to be told that the honour died with grandpa and any replacement was impossible. All I have now is the letter. That was The Gong written and read by Matthew Diamond. If you enjoyed this then please hit like and subscribe on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. And please leave a review. I'll see you next time.